What is something that you've wanted to talk about, but for whatever reason, convinced yourself not to? Superhumans. 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 I'm your host, Gotham Galati, better known as Dr. G. As someone who once prescribed pills, I now prescribe stories as a form of medicine. As Superhumans returns to bring you more healing, revealing, and transformative stories, we wanted to introduce you to our dear friend, Dee. Dee's story reminds us of the pain that exists when something important goes untalked about for too long. We all have that story that hasn't been told, but wants to get out. Nobody ever talked about it. We coexisted without existing but we never talked about it. In today's episode, we're celebrating the healing that happens when you break your own silence and allow your story to serve as medicine. That's what being superhuman is all about. As you listen, think about how you see yourself in Dee's story. Before we hit play, just a quick word of caution. Do not consider this medical advice please consult with a health professional should you need medical attention. One more disclaimer for you before listening to this story. We want you to know it involves graphic and disturbing violence. Please consider where you are and who you're with to determine if listening feels appropriate. And I'll see you on the other side of the story. Um, I have a really interesting relationship with mortality. I really don't know how much time passed. It might have been days, a week, a couple hours. I really don't know. My brother had stopped at a market, and this man felt a connection with my brother in such a weird way and attacked him outside of the market. Stabbed him 47 times. Decapitated him. He took what clothing and personal belongings he had that were somehow intact and put them on and took them with him and started down the road. Passerbys noticed, realized it wasn't really a normal situation and called the police and that's when they found him then found my brother found identification and then found my parents and my family
I came home from school, and my mom called me into the kitchen. And she was sitting on a bar stool, and she had me come and stand right in front of her. And she grabbed my shoulders. She wasn't a touchy person, right? She wasn't very emotional, disengaged. But, but this afternoon, she grabbed my shoulders and she said, D, I have to tell you something. I was eight years old and I said, yeah, okay. <laughs> no clue. Clueless, I'll tell you. And she said, very simply, your brother's gone. He's not coming back. And then she grabbed me very, very dramatically and held me. She didn't cry. She didn't shake. She just held me. She did a terrible job of explaining what was going on. Such a weird time. I just remember so many people coming to the door for days. They find you, they tell you, right? Police come to your door. They want more information. They need to understand what happened before he left. News reporters came. Somebody has to identify the body. My stepdad was the one. That's how they confirm precisely who was victim. And so I became an audience, I guess, to how these types of things unfold. So I'm, I'm experiencing it oddly right now. My mom became evangelical in her ways of trying to understand how to best prevent this in the future for someone else. It was my mom's process, my mom's experience to go through. I was there to support. But you can't control chaos. I came from a family of five children. My older brother, my older sister, and myself each had different fathers for very different reasons. And then I have two younger siblings who shared a father. We had different last names. 
So my mom thought it was okay to send me to school. So I went to school. Nobody knew. Nobody asked. And I don't even remember noticing that. I don't remember... thinking about it. And it occurs to me that my mom, in a very unusual time, was the single mother of three kids. And that her life was really complicated. She graduated from high school early. And at 19, she had her first child, my older brother. And he was his own phenom. (laughs) He was every little girl's dream brother. He was tall and handsome and had really great taste in music. He got me my first vinyl records, which involved Kiss and Queen, the things seven-year-olds probably shouldn't listen to. But they shaped a lot of what I listen to now. And he was playful and and awesome and tortuous in all the right ways. He tickled me until I peed and and then put a put me in the closet and put a chair there so I couldn't get out for just a little bit and then he'd let me back out and make snacks for me. And he was a child of the 60s and 70s. He was a bit confused about what was supposed to happen next. And in between then, we had our sibling that we kind of shared, my older sister, his younger sister. And we had this really crazy family dynamic that was fun and weird and complicated and None of us really knew what to do with our half-identities. And I think... I think maybe that's where my confusion with mortality is. Maybe I'm just confused about being alive. Maybe that's where my confusion sits. It's really weird. Hmm. I remember one time my mom wanted to go to the store, or was going to go run to the store, and I wanted to go, and she told me no. And I was so sad. I just was deeply attached to wanting to go to the store and she told me nope she needed some time alone and because I was quick-witted enough in second grade I said you're home alone all day how much time do you need alone and I remember she slapped me but not in the worst way (laughs) I say that now and I think well, that's stupid. It's Denny slap is the worst way. But in a way where I just thought, oh my God, she really wants to go to the store alone. And then she drove off and she left and I just cried and cried at the window, like in a bad commercial for, I don't know what, 
some rehab center or something. <laughs> it was, I still remember that very viscerally, just like, why did she want to go to the store so bad? What I didn't know was that my parents were planning to move. They had bought a small rural property in southern Oregon. I went from a population of hundreds of thousands to a town of 2,000. They were very confused by me. They weren't sure if I was Native American. I'd explain to them that I was Spanish, and then they'd, they'd laugh and say, that makes sense, Pocahontas, good to know. I say, no, no, I'm Spanish. <laughs> They'd say, I know. Pocahontas, calm down. We never talked about why we moved. I later figured it out. But we never talked about it. It was a weird transition. That place is wonderful. But it was a culture shock. I had not been prepared for. We went back to California a year later. I was nine years old. We went there for a visit. My sister was now one, precocious, wickedly smart and cute. And because she was my little sister, I hated her for no good reason. I was just a jerk. I was jealous. My older sister had shut down. She was so sad about our brother. So I guess shit rolls downhill, and I decided to shut down on my little sister. My mom never spoke of it. My dad never spoke of it. So we went back to California to visit. But it wasn't an ordinary visit. We went back because the man who had murdered my brother was on trial. And my mom produced this dress, this special dress that I was supposed to wear. I was a tomboy. I didn't have a single dress in my entire closet until this. I climbed trees and played in creeks and I got dirty. I didn't wear dresses, but I wore a dress this day because these people wanted to talk to me, she said. So we went into this hotel and stayed in a hotel, which felt very weird. We were in California, back where I felt somewhat normal again paved roads and freeways and malls and Long John Silver. I used to love the hush puppies. I think I might puke now if I had to eat that, but at the time it felt familiar and good. <laughs> and my sister, who drove me crazy, one years old, I remember was jumping on the bed. And I looked at my mom and I said, why is she jumping on the bed? I never got to jump on the bed. Why do you let her jump on the bed? And she just said, stop. Do you need to stop? 
she was serious when she said my full name. Do you need to stop? And then my sister fell off the bed, hit her head on the nightstand and cracked her head open. <laughs> she split her head open. And so we had to rush her to the ER and the whole time I was annoyed with her. That's the kind of sister I was. I was frustrated that she made this trip about her. Now all of a sudden we had to go to the emergency room where she had to get stitches. If she had just calmed down, we could have done something more fun. Maybe gone to Knott's Berry Farm. <laughs> she was okay. I remember that they took her into the back and because she was so young, I think this is the truth. I don't remember what's real or not sometimes. But they didn't give her anesthesia for it. I think it was because she was young. She was so young. They didn't put, they didn't do anything besides put stitches in her. And I could hear her screaming from the waiting room. Just screams. And I knew she was okay. And I almost felt a little bit guilty because I wasn't back there with her to help control the chaos. But we never talked about it. My mom never talked about it. The next day, I put on the dress and we went to this building, this big giant building. Nothing special about it, pretty indescript. I remember walking along the edge, a little bit elevated, like a tightrope, holding my dad's hand. They were probably deathly afraid I was going to fall and crack my head open now that I think about it. And we went into this room filled with people and it was, it was the court system. We were there for the trial. And they said, D, at a certain point, someone's going to call you and you're going to need to go up there and sit in that chair and just answer their questions. It won't take very long. Don't be worried about it. And I've never been one to run away from a challenge. <laughs> so I said, yeah, okay, no problem. And they did. They called my name. Nobody escorted me, I just walked up, sat in a chair, almost exactly, if you look, watch reruns of People's Court, it was like that, the 1980s, old-fashioned courtroom. And up on an easel, there was this big easel, up on this easel by the testifying chair that you sat on was this poster board. It's the same poster board that I buy for my kids two or three times a year so they can make a presentation in class now. And they had this poster board with all of these photos that were three by five in size, give or take, and taped in a particular pattern of nothing descript 
and one by one they pointed to the pictures. I remember being really distracted because there was a man right in the front row. And he was having a really hard time, I could tell. He was very uncomfortable, rocking, couldn't sit still. And it wasn't until later when my older sister and I talked that she said, that's the guy that killed Eric. That's the guy that killed our brother. That's who that was. So I'm sitting in this chair and they're pointing to these photos and they're just really nonchalant about it. Do you recognize that jacket? Do you recognize that backpack? Do you recognize whatever? A sleeping bag for some reason, my brother, I guess he was going to, I don't know what, he brought a sleeping bag. Do you recognize that sleeping bag? These pictures were actual pictures of my brother's stuff post-murder. So I didn't just see this stuff. It's just, it blows my mind how... How a nine-year-old was asked to look at piles of her brother's body. I think it was then. That's when I realized that he wasn't coming home. That's when I realized there was a difference between life and death. I don't remember much else about that trip. We didn't go to Knott's Berry Farm. We didn't do anything fun. We just came home to Oregon. We never spoke of him again, really. We had one picture of him, his Navy picture. There were others, but that we weren't allowed to. I take that back. It wasn't that we weren't allowed to. It never came up again. Shortly after that, my little brother was born. My mom was surprised at 46 with the gift of another child. And it was a boy. And this is how life works. It's insanely serendipitous that her first and last child, she was bookended with sons. But she had lost hope. Mortality's so weird. 
Meanwhile, I'm going through those weird stages of life as a kid. And one day when I was... Hmm... 16 or so I really looked at my mom you ever have those moments when you just suddenly snap to reality like you drop into your own existence your own setting and you see things from a almost like an authorship sort of way and I looked at her and I said mom are you okay really quickly and dismissively she said yes d i'm fine why and i said you look really sad i don't think you've been taking showers have you been brushing your teeth what are you doing are you okay and she just got teary and she said no and why does it matter you go you i didn't even think you guys noticed i didn't even think you cared And I realized that my mom needed a mom. That she probably had for a long time. And so I stepped in. I started to do this thing. It became a game. When we would talk on the phone. At the end of our phone call, I would say, Mom. And she'd say, yes. And I'd say, I love you. And then just wait for her to stumble and fumble because she never said that. And she'd go, I uh, love you too. And then she would hang up as fast as possible. And it wasn't that I wanted to make her uncomfortable. It's that I wanted to remind her. It's okay to be alive. Once a year, definitely not on January 1st when people set New Year's resolutions because I don't find them to be worth a goddamn thing. I ask myself, why am I here? What am I doing with this life? And every time it's to be of service, to make a difference, to do better. And I'm coming up on the anniversary of it's time to start asking myself, what am I doing here? Why am I alive? And I think to find a healthy relationship with snow. To walk a dirt road for miles, for weeks, just because... And I think I have to own up to my own fear of being perfectly okay. 
okay to be okay. Mm. Yeah. Welcome back. Dr. G here again. To each of us, understanding how we fit into this world is a journey. An oftentimes chaotic journey that becomes more clear as we reflect on the stories within us. My co-creator and co-producer, Pamela Rothenberg, has a few things to add about the making of this episode. One of the things that makes this story so special is that Dee started out as a listener and now she's here on the other side allowing her story to be a form of medicine. We want to thank Dee for her courage to be here, to be alive, to know and teach us that it's okay to break our own silence, no matter how many years or decades. Now, is better than never. In our next episode, you'll hear from award-winning cellist Kendall Remsur as he brings us into a love story that tests his fate and faith as he discovers the healing power of music. It was something about the cello that, that really resonated with me. I don't know, there was a lot of resemblance in the human voice, almost as if it had its own soul. I immediately knew that we would be lifelong friends. <laughs> That's how I felt, even at that, that, young, that young age. This episode was kindly supported by an educational grant from our friends at Daiichi Sankyo. Without you, this would not be possible. We share in our values and unrelenting commitment to human life. If you, our listeners, share in similar values and want to explore the power of sponsoring our docuseries, please reach out. We'd love to hear from you. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe and leave a review to help new listeners discover how story can be a form of medicine. Superhumans is made with love by a tribe of creative artists. Our senior producer and show co-creator is Pamela Rothenberg. Sound engineering and design is provided by Rob Spate. Pre-production audio engineering is provided by Jay Wujun Yao. Our original theme music is composed by Daniel Brunel. And a special thanks to our creative collaborators, Hatch. From Well Played, I'm Dr. G, and you are loved.